If you take your Bibles, turn along with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We have a very curious passage before us this morning. You ever struggle to understand what the Bible is saying? Thankfully, it's not all like that. Most of it's very clear. But there are some passages that are hard to understand. There's a number of biblical passages we could turn to that we might read it and say, huh, I don't really know what that means. Well, if that's you this morning, and that's certainly me this morning, well, you're in good company because the Apostle Peter struggled with this same thing with reference to some of Paul's writings. He says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16, referring to Paul, he says, also in his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of Scripture, to their own destruction. Peter says of the Apostle Paul's writing that there are some things that he says that are hard to understand. Thank you, Peter. That's a relief. Well, in our text this morning, Peter writes a few things himself which are hard to understand. I guess it takes one to know one. But despite the difficulty of understanding Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, the overall message is clear enough for us. The believer can have confidence and be encouraged even in the midst of suffering for doing what is right. Because Jesus has suffered and died on the cross, he has risen from the dead, He is victorious over all his enemies, and today he is ruling over all things from the right hand of God. So, whatever difficulties there are in this passage, and there are many, the message is clear. So let's dive into this difficult passage and see what God has for us. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, and I'll take us through the end of the chapter. Verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together.
Lord, it's not surprising to us that there would be some things in your word which are hard for us to understand. For how can the finite fully understand the infinite? How can the mortal understand he who is immortal? Human language struggles to fully put into words just exactly who you are and precisely what you've done for us. And yet, Lord, by your Spirit, the writers of Scripture were moved to write so that the writings which they produced are the very words of God. These are God-breathed texts. And they're intended for our good, for our edification, for our encouragement, for our correction, training in righteousness. So teach us, Lord, today, by your word and by your spirit, Lord, that we might find encouragement in the midst of suffering. Teach us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Martin Luther, the great reformer, was certainly a man of incredible intellect and total confidence in God's word. When he stood accused at the Diet of Worms, when his life was on the line, he said this, Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. That's a man of great confidence in the Word of God. And yet when Luther came along this text, our text this morning, he didn't seem to have that same level of confidence. Listen to what Luther says about 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 through 22. This is a strange text, and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. Martin Luther. <laughs> not exactly a here I stand moment. But that's just the reality of our struggle at times to fully understand what, what God's word is communicating to us. New Testament scholar Karen Job says this about this passage, even among today's interpreters, this passage has the reputation for being perhaps the most difficult in all the New Testament. Congratulations, you came to church today. <laughs> so what are we to do with a passage like this that talks about spirits in prison and baptism saves you and Comparing baptism and the waters of the flood and all of these other things that seem to be very difficult for us to understand. What are we to do with a passage like this that is hard to understand and which is so massively disputed? 
Well, we talked about the same thing back in Genesis chapter 6. That was a long time ago. Regarding the difficulty of understanding that, remember that passage there where it talks about the sons of God visited the daughters of men, and what is that, and the Nephilim that come from that, you know, and all the different views that are believed about the interpretation of that difficult text in Genesis 6. And so I think it bears repeating here, and there's some overlap, because I think, I think Peter is actually referencing Genesis 6 here. When he talks about those spirits in prison. But again, that's somewhat disputed. So I think the words that we mentioned back in Genesis 6 are helpful here when dealing with a difficult text that's hard to understand. We do believe in what theologians call the perspicuity of Scripture. Perspicuity. Let's say it together. Perspicuity. Okay, you said it. Now what does it mean? It means the clarity of Scripture. This fancy word, perspicuity, simply means clarity. It means that the Scriptures are clear in communicating the message of God concerning salvation. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't difficult Bible verses or there aren't different views about what the Bible teaches on many subjects. But it does mean that God's Message to us is accessible to us and can be known by us. And that the central message of the scriptures is in fact crystal clear. The London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 stated the doctrine of perspicuity this way. And by the way, these quotes are on the uh, church app in the sermon notes. There's bonus material yet again. So check out the church app, scroll down to the bottom of it, and you'll see it there on sermon notes. Here's the London Baptist Confession of Faith regarding the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or the other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. In other words, Scripture is clear about salvation. How one can be saved. Who God is. The problem that man has encountered with sin and rebellion in his own heart. And what God has done to remedy that by sending his own son Jesus Christ. And how he offers forgiveness and eternal life to all who will believe on Jesus. The scriptures on that are absolutely crystal clear. But it also acknowledges that statement that not every verse of Scripture is as clear as every other, which makes sense. So what do we do when we run into a verse of Scripture that is difficult to interpret and understand? Well, again, the London Baptist Confession of Faith is helpful on this. It says this, The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. 
So the clearer passage, passages of Scripture help us to interpret and rightly understand the less clear passages. Does that make sense? It means that Scripture interprets Scripture. Since God is the author of the Word, and since God's Word is true, then God's Word will not contradict itself. So we won't find one passage of Scripture teaching something entirely contradictory to some other passage of Scripture. Because the Bible ultimately has one author, and that's God. And God is true, and He speaks truth. Therefore, it will not contradict. So we must let the clearer passages of Scripture help us in interpreting the less clear passages. There are people who have run off in all sorts of strange directions, unwise directions, with a difficult or unclear passage. It's always unwise to hang heavy weights of doctrine on very thin nails of questionable interpretation. I love, again, that statement. You've heard me say it before by Alistair Begg. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. When it comes to Scripture, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Let that guide you, okay? There are plenty of plain things, and we ought to make those plain things in Scripture the main things in Scripture. Now, whatever, take, whatever view you take regarding the teaching of 1 Peter 3, 18 through 21, it's really not a very critical issue. Believers can disagree on these things. We can have our own perspective and our own convictions about exactly what Peter's getting at in many of these issues. No major doctrine hangs in the balance here, ultimately. Regardless of which view you take on any of these disputed issues, the whole point of the passage is that Jesus is risen, Jesus is reigning, and that means that victory and salvation of those who have faith in Jesus is certain, even if now, for a little while, we experience suffering for following Jesus. That's the big idea. So, as we walk through this difficult passage this morning, I want us to see together three truths to encourage us when we experience suffering for doing good. Three truths to encourage us when we're experiencing suffering for doing good. Now, it's been said that the three most important factors in real estate are location, location, location. Well, the three most important factors in rightly interpreting and understanding a passage of Scripture is context, context, context. All right, so we don't want to helicopter into this passage without reference to the rest of the book and try to come up with some novel interpretation. That is what we don't want to do. What we want to do is try to track and trace Peter's argument throughout the book and particularly the immediate context where this difficult passage is nestled, and see if that doesn't provide us with some help in guiding us and providing some guardrails so that we don't end up careening off a cliff. All right? 
hermeneutically. All right, so the context of verses 18 through 22 is directly linked to what Peter has said in verse 17. All right? It makes sense that the context of verse 18 is verse 17, right? Because that's what comes before it. So let's look back at 1 Peter 3, 17. Okay? Peter says, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Christians, Peter says, let's not, let's not experience suffering for doing wrong things, right? If you suffer for doing wrong things, you're just getting what you deserve. But if you suffer, let's make sure that we're, our suffering is coming because we're doing the right thing rather than for doing the wrong thing. Now, the idea of suffering for doing what is good or doing the right thing was introduced back in verse 14, okay? So now we're going back further in the context. 1 Peter 3, 14, Peter says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Okay, so the theme of this section of Scripture is on the believer, the follower of Jesus, who ends up suffering for actually doing the right thing, for following Jesus. There is a cost for following Jesus. And sometimes we find ourselves at odds with the culture or the government or our neighbors because we want to follow Jesus and our allegiance is to Jesus, but our neighbors or our government or our workplace, they don't like that. And we end up suffering as a result of doing the right thing. That's the broader context of what brings us to verses 18 through 22. Peter wants his readers to know that when they suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong, they should know that the blessing of God is on them. They are blessed. Even though they're suffering, God is still pleased with them. He is Blessing them. And Peter provides us with three encouragements in the midst of such suffering for doing what is right. All right? And so that's where we pick up today. The first encouragement comes in verse 18, and it's the fact that our salvation came by means of the suffering of Jesus. Be encouraged when you're suffering for doing the right thing, knowing that Jesus already walked that path. Now, we looked at the meaning of this verse, verse 18, in depth last Sunday. We just focused in on it because this is a difficult passage and it could get lost in the shuffle. I wanted to just focus our attention on verse 18 because the gospel is presented there so clearly. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is is right there. Talk about the plain things of Scripture. That verse 18 is not in dispute. Verse 18, there aren't a lot of different views about what Peter's actually trying to get at there. It's very clear. Jesus is the just and we are the unjust. Jesus died for the unjust to bring us to God. 
That's what he says, right? Christ also died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. If you missed that message last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's, it's just the gospel. 1 Peter 3.18 is just the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, that your sins can be forgiven through faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. We can be tempted to think that sometimes suffering for doing what is right is pointless. That it's useless. Why keep doing the right thing if it seems that in the end, no good deed goes unpunished? Why not just go with the cultural flow if doing what is right is going to result in suffering? If I do the right thing, I should get rewarded for it. Things should go well for me if I do the right thing. And we can be tempted to think like that sometimes. Well, Peter reminds us here in verse 18 that it was actually as a result of Jesus' suffering that we have been blessed, that we have been saved. God used the suffering of Jesus on the cross and his death to bring about our immeasurable good. That's what God does. He takes our suffering and he brings from it immeasurable good. We don't always see it. We don't always know what it is. Can't always identify it. It won't be until heaven until we see most of it. But we can believe that it's true because we know it happened in Jesus' own life. If ever there was anyone who always did the right thing, it was Jesus, right? He was perfect. He was sinless. He always did what was pleasing to the Father, and yet he suffered for doing the right thing. But through his suffering came our immeasurable good. Forgiveness of sin, eternal life, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church, the glory of eternity, all of it stems back. All of our blessings, our our eternal blessings, all of them can be traced back to this fountainhead of Jesus Christ and his suffering on the cross. Well, that's important too. So Peter here in verse 18 is reminding us that it's actually because of Jesus' suffering that we've been saved. God is able to bring about good out of our suffering too. We saw this very clearly illustrated back in the Joseph story in Genesis. You remember the great suffering that Joseph went through? How he was betrayed by his own brothers and sold into slavery down into Egypt. How he was wrongly accused in Potiphar's household, spent time in prison, forgotten, languished there, and yet God caused him to rise up through the ranks 
till he became the most powerful man in Egypt, except for Pharaoh himself. And then when he confronts his brothers, he, he has that reunion, that incredible moment. What does he do? He says, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph understood that God uses our own sufferings to bring about his purposes and his purposes are always good. But that doesn't always translate into a bigger bank account, into health, into advancement. Sometimes God's purposes involve our suffering, but rest assured that in the midst of that suffering, God is still doing his good work and bringing blessing to you and I. Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things, even our suffering, to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Yes, God not only can... But he will redeem our suffering when we suffer for righteousness' sake. It may seem as though there's no point in it. It may seem as though it's purposeless to suffer for doing the right thing. But there is actually great purpose in it. There is divine purpose in it. And we need to look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ for proof. So if you are struggling with discouragement in the midst of suffering for doing the right thing, look no further than the cross. Where Jesus suffered for doing the right thing, and yet that suffering was part of God's plan to bring about immeasurable good to you and I. All right, so secondly, second encouragement. Our salvation is similar to to Noah's salvation. Now this is where things get a little more complicated. At the end of verse 18, Peter states that Jesus, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Holy Spirit. Verse 19 says that Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient. Now, what does that mean? Well, some say it was the spirit of Jesus through the Holy Spirit preaching through Noah to wicked people in the days of the flood. Now, certainly we believe that the spirit was preaching through Noah, to wicked people in the days of the flood. But is that what Peter's referring to here? I don't think so. I believe the best option is understanding that these spirits that are imprisoned were evil spirits that were committing great acts of evil during the days before and leading up to the flood in Genesis 6. We read in Genesis 6 that mankind was engaged in incredible evil, evil inspired by evil spirits. Jude 6 says this, 
about these spirits and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. So there are some fallen angels, evil angels, demons, who abandoned their proper abode that God is keeping in eternal bonds until the day of judgment. Peter here talks about these spirits in prison. I think they're talking about the same group of fallen angels that God has imprisoned because of their great, great evil. So what is being said here is that Jesus went and proclaimed victory and judgment over these evil spirits that are kept in prison, kept in chains. It was a kind of victory lap, a declaration of victory over the worst of God's enemies, victory secured by the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus declared from the cross, it is finished. And with that, The demons, evil, death, it was all finished. The war was decisively won at the cross, even though skirmishes are still taking place. This discussion of the evil spirits in prison leads Peter to a discussion of the circumstances of Noah's deliverance and salvation. And there are several parallels between Noah's deliverance and salvation and our own deliverance and salvation. And I think Peter is making these parallels. So let me point out a few of the parallels between Noah's salvation and ours. He says God was patient in Noah's day. God graciously gave significant time For the people of the world to repent before the flood came. From the time God revealed he would destroy the world by flood to the time the flood waters actually began to rise was 120 years. 120 years. And the Bible tells us that Noah was a preacher. So as he's hammering and as he's sawing, he's preaching. And as he's constructing this massive ark along with his family, the ark itself is preaching, right? Something big is going to happen. Something bad is going to happen. You better repent. Repent of your sins and believe on the Lord. Noah preached to anyone who would listen while he built the ark. It's estimated that Noah spent some 70 years building that ark within that 120 years between the announcement by God that a great flood was coming and the time that the flood actually came. God was patient in Noah's day, giving people decades and decades and decades to hear the message 
to come to their senses, to wake up to the judgment that was coming and repent. But sadly, hardly any of them did. In fact, it was only Noah's family, eight souls. Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives who were spared God's judgment. Well, as God was patient in Noah's day, God is still patient today. Aren't you glad the Lord is patient? He's patient with you. He's patient with me. He's patient with the world right now. What does the world deserve? What it's always deserved since the fall. Judgment. Destruction. But that's not what the world is getting right now. The world is receiving the Lord's patience. 2 Peter 3.9, Peter says this in his second letter. The Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness. God's going to make good on His promise to return. The Lord Jesus is going to make good on His promise to return in judgment. He's not slow about His promise as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The Lord is patient. As he was in the days of Noah, so he is now, because the Lord never changes. Despite God's patience and Noah's warnings, only eight people were ultimately saved from destruction. That's a relatively few who were saved, right, and spared. Well, the Christians in Asia Minor must have been feeling vastly outnumbered. As the world around them, the Roman Empire just kept steaming forward. They were few in number compared to the thousands of unbelievers around them. But their relative few numbers were not a sign of God's disfavor with them or of God's abandoning them, even as it was for Noah. Noah and his family were saved from destruction by an ark which kept them out of the water. As the water served as the instrument of the destruction of the world, those same waters were used of God to buoy Noah and his family in the ark. The ark floated on top of the waters, which were the very instrument of God's destruction for the rest of the world. And so the ark here serves as a a type pointing to our salvation in Jesus Christ. Verse 21 even uses the word type. In my translation, it's translated corresponding to that referencing what has just gone before, corresponding to that is actually the Greek word for type. A type is a person, a thing, or an event in history where the historical person, thing, or event, the type, serves to foreshadow a later person, thing, or event, which is the antitype. So you have the type and the antitype. 
So Noah's deliverance from death through the ark serves as the type of our salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the antitype. And with this idea of Noah and his family being brought safely through the water by the ark, Peter makes the analogy of baptism where the person being baptized is brought safely through the water. So he thinks of water with Noah's ark, and then he transitions rather seamlessly to water in baptism. And Peter says, now, baptism saves you. Baptism now saves you. Now, what are we to make of this? Does this mean that baptism is now the actual instrument of our salvation that brings about and makes possible salvation? Does this mean that Peter is actually teaching here baptismal regeneration, that we're brought to spiritual life in the waters of baptism? Is that what he means? Now, I think Peter's clear enough. Look at the end of verse 21. An appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the true instrument of our salvation, the ground of our salvation, is not baptism. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how we're saved. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And in part, Jesus' resurrection is what baptism pictures. So Peter is clearly not teaching that baptism is the instrument that saves us. And again, Scripture interpreting Scripture, we know from far clearer passages how a person is saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, faith itself is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. There is no work a human being can do that can contribute to or secure their salvation. Absolutely none whatsoever. No, we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And so this is a good example of where Scripture needs to interpret Scripture. The analogy of the faith, the less clear texts of Scripture, need to be interpreted in light of the clearer texts. So if baptism is not what saves us, then why does Peter say baptism now saves you? Well, because having mentioned Noah and the flood waters, he uses water baptism as a metonym for faith. All right, you still with me? I know we're in we're in the weeds now, right? Metonym. Hmm. School's out, kids, right? It's summer. What's a metonym? Well, a metonym is a word that is used as a substitute for something else with which it is closely associated. 
Let me give you some examples. We sometimes use the word Washington as a metonym for the federal government. Does that make sense? When we say the pen is mightier than the sword, we're using two metonyms to say the written word is mightier than military force. Baptism is used here as a metonym for faith in Jesus. You see, in the New Testament, this is a little difficult for us to understand because we have somehow separated salvation, trusting in Jesus Christ from baptism. In the New Testament, those two things go hand in hand. They're they're almost two sides of the same coin. In the New Testament, someone who professed faith in Jesus would be baptized almost immediately. The idea of a follower of Jesus not being baptized was unthinkable. There was no category for an unbaptized believer. There just wasn't. So closely were faith and baptism associated that to talk about the one always meant assuming the other. And I think that's what Peter is doing here. Peter's clear as he he clarifies that baptism's significance is not in removing uncleanness from the body, But baptism, along with faith in Jesus, is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism being a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ and identifying with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience, to be right with God, to know that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And this appeal to God for a good conscience, to know that you are right with God, that there's now peace between you and God, is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's precisely what Peter says there at the end. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let me try to be as clear as I can. Beloved, we are saved... Solely by faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Baptism is to be observed and obeyed by all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, it's so closely associated with being a believer that to speak of believing in Jesus and being baptized by Jesus is sometimes interchangeable. even though baptism on its own is impotent to save us. This appeal to God for a good conscience is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So our salvation is similar to Noah's salvation in that God was patient In Noah's day, God is patient now. In Noah's day, seemingly few were saved. 
seemingly in our own day, few are being saved. In Noah's day, God, through water, spared Noah and his family as they safely floated atop the water in the ark. In our day, God safely brings us through the waters of baptism, which serve as a picture of our faith in Jesus Christ and a profession of said faith. All right, thirdly and finally, our salvation is certain because of Christ's victory and ascension. Okay, so verse 18 of this difficult passage is clear. Got it? Verse 22 is clear. It's the muddy middle that we all have difficulty with. All right? So now we're to verse 22. Our salvation is certain because of Christ's victory and ascension. We have an appeal to God for a good conscience through faith in Jesus' resurrection. Verse 22, Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Having risen from the dead, verse 22 states that Jesus is now at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven. Jesus suffered and died on the cross. He was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Jesus then made many appearances in his resurrected, glorified body, appearing in the center of rooms, seemingly to walk through walls in his glorified body, able to eat. All of these things he did in front of the apostles and over 500 eyewitnesses over the course of 40 days after the resurrection. And then Jesus ascended before the watching disciples. Mark 16, 19 says, So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. That's the ascension of Christ. And the author of Hebrews repeatedly makes the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God the culmination and the apex of Jesus' work and ministry. Where Jesus takes his rightful place of honor, power, glory at the right hand of God. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. I'm going to read several verses from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 1.3. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 8.1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest in Jesus who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Hebrews 10.12. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12, 2. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Peter says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God after angels, authorities, and powers had been subjected to him. Angels, authorities, and powers is referring to different ranks of evil angels, fallen angels, demons. These fallen evil angels have been placed in total subjection to the authority of Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand, again notice that, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. This means that there is no power, no authority greater than Jesus. The Jesus you serve is ruling and reigning right now at the right hand of God. He has control over all things. Everything is subjected to him. Everything is under him. Everything comes under his authority. Which means that there is nothing that can thwart Jesus' plan. It means that there is nothing that can overturn Jesus' purposes. And it means that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can separate us from Jesus. We don't have to wait for some future time when Jesus rules and reigns over all things. He's already doing it. Now, mind you, there is going to come a day when every knee is going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When there will be no patience of God for dissent and disagreement with God about who He is and what He's done. There is coming a day when all rebellion will be finally and fully put down. But make no mistake about it, despite the fact that the world continues to struggle against God's authority, Jesus is in control. He is ruling and reigning from God's throne at God's right hand. So when you're suffering for doing the right thing, remember that you have reason to be encouraged. That it was through Jesus' suffering for doing the right thing that God brought about our greatest blessing. Salvation and eternal life. And God is right now using our sufferings for doing the right thing to bring about his good purposes. Remember that like Noah, though we may seem to be outnumbered by those who oppose us, God is still at work. And our small numbers are no sign of God's displeasure. And always remember Jesus is reigning from the right hand of God's throne. No matter how we may suffer for following Jesus, remember Jesus is always on the throne. And Jesus' purposes are always being accomplished, even in our sorrow and our suffering. This is the believer's confident hope. And in this we can find joy and purpose and comfort even when suffering for doing what is right. May the Lord grow us into maturity.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your guidance to us as we've considered your holy word today. We thank you that your spirit works in us to illumine our minds and apply your word to our hearts to convict us and encourage us and strengthen us and train us. Lord, we thank you that through your suffering we have received blessing. Through your suffering you have received glory and honor and power and majesty. Remind us when we're suffering that you have divine purposes in that suffering. That no suffering is wasted. But that suffering for following Jesus is part of your good plan too. Help us to believe that and trust you in the midst of such suffering. Lord, remind us that you are ruling and reigning even now at the right hand of God. That all things are subject to you. That nothing comes our way but what it hasn't already cleared your purposes and plans for us. Help us to trust you, to look to you, to ask for your help, aid, and guidance in the midst of our suffering. Lord Jesus, we thank you for suffering on our behalf and working for our good in each and every circumstance. 